A Weekend with Jason Dacey Replay from Money FM 89.3. Inspiring interviews, Singapore stories here on Money FM 89.3. I'm with uh, Mark Laudy, former CNBC and ABC Australia broadcaster, who's the CEO of Ong Bao Media, a well-known man about town. Mark, can you believe you've been in Singapore for 21 years now? Is that all? Uh, it, certainly <laughs> fe- it certainly feels like home, has done for many, many years, Jason. And you've got a really interesting and diverse background. You were born in Johannesburg to German parents. You moved to Perth at the age of nine. You moved back to Germany. Uh, then you moved back to Australia, and then you came to Singapore in the 1990s. So what do you feel? Do you feel Australian, German, Singaporean, South African? I like the accent. <laughs> well, uh, I know this will sound strange coming from uh, Angmore like me, but Singapore certainly is home, and in part, obviously, because my family is Singaporean. But there is something that speaks to me from Singapore that, um, that, that appeals to me as a personality. I quite like things not being quite so chaotic. Uh, and, I, um, and, and I was just saying yesterday to my family, uh, walking through Vivo City or, or in front of Vivo City where the fountains are, mm. how lucky we are actually to live in a country which has um, good weather all year round, um, amazing opportunities for education and employment. No country is perfect, clearly, but uh, but we come pretty damn close in Singapore. And you say good weather year-round because a lot of people don't like the weather here and you would have been in different kind of temperate climates, but you like it? Sure. Um, you know, it's easy to say, oh, you know, I want to be able to wear a sweater again. And how many times have you seen Singaporeans? They go to wintertime, right, the shop, yes. and then they buy themselves their sweaters and then they jet off to Europe for a few weeks. That's well and good as long as you can come back <laughs> uh, because if you had to live in that sort of climate all year-round – then I'd say that you probably get pretty tired of the cold weather before long. Well, in this discussion about your life, we're going to actually parallel it with two changes in in media. Uh, And it's really interesting to me that you moved to Australia and you couldn't really speak English uh, when you went there. And yet a few years later, you had become a a, a broadcaster and journalist. So tell me about that uh, transition of of learning English as, I guess, German was your mother tongue. It was. And uh, it was certainly difficult for the first six weeks sitting in an Australian primary school without understanding a word that was being said. Do you remember that? Oh, very well. Mm. Um, But like all kids, you adapt very quickly. And um, you only have to look at uh, kids that move to Australia, for example, from other countries, from Asian countries who move there. And before long, they speak with a broad Australian accent. Kids are versatile. Uh, That wasn't so much uh, the issue. I I guess you, you develop when you migrate somewhere. Uh, and and you you tend to migrate a lot when when certainly in my family you know we moved from one place to the other you get used to not fitting in, and so you make an effort I guess more of an effort than if you were a local to to try to fit in. So it was Perth, Western Australia where you settled, and by 1994 I think it's your 25th anniversary next January uh, when you started your journalistic career, your main career at the ABC in Perth. Uh, what was that like, and what was journalism and broadcasting back then? I had the the great fortune of being one of 11 graduates out of my 100-strong journalism class to get a job, um, in part thanks to this voice. And it was, it, was a, it was the time when, if you wanted to be a journalist, you really only had three options, a cadetship at the West Australian newspaper. And by the way, the year that I graduated, they took five law graduates, which didn't please my journalism cohort wow. very much. Uh, or you found uh, a position in a commercial radio station somewhere in a remote part of Australia. So, and and the third option is the one that that I had uh, to join the ABC in a 
little country town 250 kilometres north of Adelaide called Port Piri, known largely for its mining and its uh, lead smelter. Um, and in those days, as I said, there were only three games in town. And now, of course, 25 years later, 10th of January next year, it'll be 25 years. Uh, now, this idea that you have to join a radio station or a newspaper to start a career in media obviously seems rather rather quaint uh, because, you know, anybody can start a YouTube channel or a podcast. Um, but the, the other unfortunate part that I've seen about the change in journalism is that it has become, firstly, much more broad. There are very few specialists left because they're expensive. Mm. Uh, journalism has also become, as a result, much more about the, you know, the quick headline. And you know, in a sense, there's a there's a trend. Twitter has has started. You know, the 140 now 280 yeah. character tw- yeah. trend where everything has got to be short. Apart from being broad, nobody wants to go in depth anymore. And probably the worst part about the media is that there hasn't really been an an, an understanding of how what you consume from radio, television, newspapers, internet, how, how that news came about. And the, and the news consumer continues to be very unsophisticated. There was a study I saw in the US uh, just in the last week, which showed that um, there were lots and lots of people who complained about fake news. And yet those people who identified firstly as fake news, uh, spotters of yep. fake news, second as Republican, that third they were much more likely to believe any old trash they read online. And, and that, that really ought to be our concern, that it, while we focus so much on the senders of those news and the changes in who is sending the news, that we haven't really focused enough on what is the audience, the recipient of that news, do with that information? And how do we get them to be a bit more media savvy so that they are more cluey about what to believe and what not to believe? Yeah, I think you're 100% right. Uh, you know, with our social feeds, I think a lot of people take that as more relevant than what mainstream media outlets uh, are actually giving us. And sometimes it's true with yeah. the present company accepted. You know, when as journalism has moved to that broad lack that broad coverage with no specialization, lack of depth, it's not surprising that people have flocked to people online who held strong opinions or who demonstrate a certain amount of savvy in a particular subject matter. But again, that's talking about the senders. What about the receivers? Are people, are the average news consumers, are you listening to Jason and I talking, for example? Are you aware of how news has come up, how news is built? Mm. Are you in a position to understand or to, to recognize fake news when you see it? And if the answer is no or not sure, then this is precisely the problem that I'm talking about. I'm speaking to Mark Lowdy, the former CNBC and ABC Australia broadcaster, now the CEO of Ongbao Media, about his journey in journalism and how broadcasting has changed. Talk about when you first arrived in Singapore. What brought you here? Well, if you promise not to laugh, um, I, I moved here to learn Chinese. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, because 1997, you know, this was two years before China joined the WTO, um, and nobody just moved to Taiwan, especially if you're a broadcaster. And Hong Kong, I loved Hong Kong, but Cantonese mm. wasn't what I wanted to learn. So Mandarin, Singapore was really the only option. And having learned English by immersion in Australia, I figured I'd have to learn <laughs> Chinese by immersion in a country where it's spoken regularly. And yep. that's why Singapore was my choice. Um, now, I'd, I'd have to say that my Chinese isn't as half as good as it should be because you kind of get busy and you, mm. you know, get caught up at work and so on. But, but um, you know, people ask me when I'm going back and I'm well, going back, well, probably about six o'clock tonight. You know, there's there's no place else to go back to <laughs> yeah. other than Singapore. And working at CNBC, what was that like? When I started at CNBC, 
um, it was the sort of newsroom that when you arrived, you felt like you had set foot in one of the great newsrooms of the world. It was buzzing. It was packed. Every desk was occupied by two people. Uh, morning shift and mm. afternoon shift, they shared a desk. Wow. We were that, uh, that cramped for space. And what period are we talking about? Uh, this was 1999, uh, just as the dot-com bubble was uh, expanding uh, when we had CEOs on air. And depending on how they did in their interviews, they, their stock price would rise or fall. Mm. You know? um, and, and obviously, because of those technological changes that we saw over time, uh, things started to change in the newsroom too where we ended up with so many rows of empty desks that they took out a few of those uh, desks and, and put in another camera. And so, you know, at CNBC, we saw, we saw that evolution of, of the media and that competition with the internet um, really palpably be displayed purely in the number of colleagues that we had in the office. So you could, you know, see how things changed during your seven years. You were there at seven years at CNBC. You could see how... I guess your uh, channel was becoming less powerful, less relevant uh, when with the internet booming. Well, like most television networks, uh, it took CNBC a while to use the internet for its own benefit. Um, and you know, it, it's you, you look across many of the publications and TV networks all around the world. the The first experience of the internet was trying to sell subscriptions to the old style newspaper subscriptions rather than use the internet mm -hmm. as a disseminator of news. When I was at CNBC, we used to write cease and desist letters to, com to companies and people who, you know, recorded a video clip of themselves appearing on our program and then streamed it on the internet. Cease and desist letters. Of course, now TV stations are happily inviting you to share content on your website because it allows <laughs> them to carry their internet to their true, advertising to your website. So you went out on your own uh, around, uh, I guess, 13 years ago, Hongbao Media? Yes, I started um, Hongbao Media just as I was leaving CNBC and just as YouTube was starting. My initial focus was on actually producing content for 3G networks. Do you remember those days? Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Um, but it soon became apparent that in the, the greater need in Singapore is actually for people to become, as I was saying earlier, more media savvy. Mm. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's sad, really, that as a country, we, we have it seemingly built into us that we're, we're constantly media shy when we should be out there flying our flag and telling our stories in a better way. Heaven knows the Malaysians are doing so, and yeah. the Filipinos and the yeah. Indonesians. Um, so this isn't really a, a quote-unquote an Asian thing not to want to appear in the media, but is in fact um, just something that we seem to have um, ingrained in Singapore. And it's to our detriment. When a country has no resources but people, people need to be the best they possibly can be. And that also means articulating themselves well, whether that's in the media or pitching a fintech idea to, a, to an investor or you know, whatever the presentation opportunity might be. So we're speaking to Mark Laudy, the CEO at Ongbao Media, former CNBC and ABC Australia broadcaster. So, yeah, talk more about how what you're doing with uh, your company has evolved and, and especially in the last uh, few years with some of the changes we've seen in media technology. Mm. Well, we're putting our money where our mouths are. Uh, so first thing that we did was uh, start an award called the Hongbao Media Savvy Awards. And in fact, uh, Evangeline Leong, one of your guests uh, here mm, on Money yeah. FM, uh, won the best broadcast uh, um, participant or best broadcast interview in our awards because she was able to demonstrate her storytelling uh, capacity. Um, but it's not just, uh, you know, promoting people who already do well. We've just uh, uh, unveiled a studio in uh, Robinson Road where we take people through live webcasting skills as well because that's the next thing, Jason. Um, live webcasting is going to be with us uh, in ways in, in two to three years from now in ways that we are already 
used to Facebook and YouTube. If you get out your mobile phone right now, you start Facebook, you start your YouTube app, within two or three clicks, you're streaming live video. Mm. And in that environment, uh, you will you will see, as a, as a news consumer, you will see so much more live video. At conferences and trade shows, you'll see people going live everywhere. Mm. And, and possibly most worrying for you if you're a senior business leader is that when you're on stage at the rostrum giving your presentation to, let's say, 200 people in front of you in the ballroom, what's the bet? There'll be an extra 2,000 people watching you on the live stream. And you may not even know that you're going live. right? So, so that's really mm. where, where… It changes everything. Well, it, and, and for good reason mm. too because going live means it's more urgent. Just be, but just by, yeah, by the mere fact yeah. that you're going live, it must be urgent. It must mm. be important. Second, there's the interactivity, mm-hmm. being able to interact with members of the audience, remote and in the room. But also the fact that you save an awful lot of time, money and effort by not having to record something and then edit it later on. That whole editing process. Post-production. The post-production. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're ever in, in the mood to produce a video – my goodness, save yourself the effort. Just do it live, okay? Because, <laughs> because the whole post-production and all the decisions that you have to make and the costs that you incur in post-production yeah. is… The uh, time, you know. It, it's a killer. And before mm. long, six weeks later, you'll finally get your video out and, of course, then it's old. So, so for all of those reasons, you're much better off just doing it live. How much do you miss uh, being a broadcaster? Because I, th- I think I remember when I arrived in Singapore in 2001, I remember turning on CNBC and seeing you up there mm-hmm. and you were working hard, uh, you know, around the clock. Uh, it seems like you're on, on TV a lot. Six yeah. hours a day. Yeah, yeah, six hours a day and you're spewing out information. I mean, spewing is probably not the best verb to use, but… That's okay. I'll forgive you. <laughs> but no, you're probably right. Um, you see, the, the um, do I miss it? Um, I still get to talk as a media coach and a, mm. as an executive presence coach. I still get to talk a, a heck of a lot. But but this comes back to the live point I made earlier. You must, as a senior business leader, you must now be prepared that you are live every time you speak. And and then you might scoff and say, no, 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 I'm only live when I'm you know on on, on television or on radio. Not true. Um, and there are a number of cases where even senior business leaders giving town hall addresses. So, which by definition are internal meetings, right? You're calling your, together your staff and you're saying, you know, ladies and gentlemen, fellow members of staff, I'm here to tell you about our plans for next year. What's the bet? One member, at least one member of your staff is recording your session. Yeah. What's the bet? Another member of staff is taking snapshots of your PowerPoint slides and posting them on Instagram. What's the bet? Another staff member is probably using their YouTube or Facebook app to stream you live on their page. And so... As I said earlier, you know, do I miss it? Actually, we're, I'm still doing it. We're, we're, we're always still in an environment where we're going live. And that's going to be increasingly the case as more people become aware of how to start their YouTube app and their Facebook app and just stream something live, stream some somebody live in the street. You saw that uh, university professor the other day who got into trouble for the way that he drove his Maserati around town. Mm-hmm. And that was on a dash cam. Yeah. You know, so, so forget about this idea that you can switch on and off your media presence. You have to have that awareness that you are live all the time. 24-7. Yeah. So how do we find out more about uh, Mark Laudy and Hongbao Media? Hongbaomedia.com. Uh, but most importantly, think, you know, start about, start thinking about what sort of public persona you have. Start thinking about what sort of brand that you want to convey. What sort of – how do you want to project yourself in public? Because the first time that you'll know that you're going live is when somebody, one of your friends, WhatsApps you and says, hey, did you know that you were on YouTube or did you know that you were on Facebook just now live? And if the answer is no, that's when you've got to 
you've got to realize I've got to do something before you go to my website, hongbaomedia.com, and call me. Happy anniversary for January, your 25th anniversary in journalism and broadcasting. And 21 years in <laughs> Singapore last Wednesday. Thanks very much, Mark Loudy, for being our guest here on Money FM. Thanks for having me, Jason.